I would like to bring a message tonight entitled, Am I Heeding God's Guide to Success? And I believe I've got this clicker here if I can get this to go. Okay, Am I Heeding God's Guides to Success? And uh, there's not going to be any trumpets blowing. This is not going to be a rocket science message tonight. Not going to get into the Greek and Hebrew. Some very basic things. Uh, it's a three-point outline. Uh, most of our time, Lord willing, tonight will be spent on the third point. And what I would like to share there has actually been probably the most life-changing thing uh, in, in my life, the thing that God has used the most. So I trust that it will be a blessing and a help to you tonight. So God's guides to success. Now, if I asked you what specific things in Scripture God has said that he specifically promises to bless us with, uh, to bless us for, would you know what those are? And to make an analogy, if I said, what are the things you ought to do specifically to have good health? I think probably most of us could click those off tonight. Uh, get lots of sleep. That's not going to happen at college, by the way. Get lots of sleep. Eat right. That's probably also not happening at college. Um, don't smoke. And for a hobby, don't choose bungee jumping and wild bull riding blindfolded. And you'd probably be pretty good <laughs> uh, uh, to have good health there. But if I ask you, what are the specific things in Scripture that God says, if you do this, I will bless you with success? Could you say what those are? I think we could come up with some ideas by common sense. But there's a reason that there are specific things that God says that we'll look at tonight. So I would like to look at some Scriptures. I don't have you uh, turning tonight in your copy of the Scriptures uh, at this point because... Most of it's going to be on PowerPoint tonight. I'm going to flip through a ton of scripture. And so I thought for sake of time, I would just have us look at these on, uh, on PowerPoint tonight. So there are two main things that God, uh, in, in, that I'm aware of, tells us he will specifically bless us with success if we do these things. But it's a three-point outline because before we can talk about that, we've got to talk about the way that God defines success. So this is the prerequisite before we get to the other part, we have to define success the way that God defines it. And in our humanness, even as Christians, I think, we make the mistake of how we think about success. If I just said to you, are you successful in your job? You could point to certain things. Are you making money? Are you pleasing your boss? Um, as a piano teacher, are my students winning piano contests? Am I uh, surviving in the field? Am I growing? I could look at a lot of things on the surface that could be um, seemingly indicators of success that in God's mind really are not success. In the world, getting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and riches and things, of course, that's, that's how we tend to look at success. Getting ahead, being better than our neighbor, being one up, all those things are really not God's way of looking at success. Let's look at some scriptures here. First of all, we're going to reject the worldly concept of success. And I think if you just think about it for a moment, am I a successful dad? Am I a successful mom? Am I a successful husband? A successful wife? A successful Awana worker? A successful teacher in a Christian college or Christian high school? Then really think deeply about how God would define that. Am I truly glorifying him Am I making it my ambition to please God, which of course is the most important thing? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Therefore, Paul said, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Am I walking in the Spirit? Am I pleasing God in my spirit? Am I being a blessing to others? 
Am I making it my food to do God's will? And that's kind of a strange concept to us, but you remember that our Lord on earth said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. When I went to Bible college and I was a freshman, I was a new Christian, and everybody was talking about a life verse. And I didn't know what a life verse was, but you choose this verse, I guess, that is to govern your life in some special way. This was the verse that I came upon in John chapter 4 and verse 34. And in that passage, Christ's disciples are trying to get him to go do something else, to eat. And yet, he was wanting to be there where the woman uh, he had met at the well was going to come back so that he could bear fruit, spiritual fruit. And so he said, my food, what I organize my life around, what drives me, what I hunger to do is God's will and to finish his work. That would be a proper definition of success. Is that our desire tonight? Is that what drives us on? And then fourthly, do I make it my goal to hear at heaven's gate, well done, good and faithful servant? And you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that there are a lot of people that are going to, at the judgment seat, have their works burned up wood, hay, and stubble, not precious stones, because there were things that they were doing that were really not what God wanted them to invest in, or they were doing them for themselves. They'll be saved, yet so is by fire, and so those people might be in heaven, but they're not going to hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is that going to be what we hear when we get home? That would be success. Do we have God's definition for success in our minds? Now, I want to talk about as my second point, the first thing I'm aware of in Scripture that God really says, this is how you are to be blessed and I will bless you and give you well-being for this. And that, of course, is honoring your father and your mother. Now, that might be so basic that we would just dismiss that right off the bat tonight, but I think we should not. And I know that most of us tonight in this room are not the young people um, because they're in Awana. However, we do want to point out the importance of this, that in Ephesians, God specifically points out he makes a promise with this commandment. And so then you realize, well, the other commandments that he gave in the, in the Ten Commandments, not taking God's name in vain, not having idols, that the Lord would be your only God. God gives no promise for blessing for those. Obviously, we want to do them, but he specifically promises a blessing for this, so we don't want this to escape our notice. Your honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Well, what does he promise for doing that? That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now again, things being well with you is by God's definition. Doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven on flowery beds of ease, right? God is going to give us all trials to go through, but it's going to be well with us spiritually as God blesses us in those things. But honoring this commandment it's the first commandment with promise. And it's also repeated in Exodus 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 16. God gives those commandments. And I want to clarify that honoring your parents is more than simple obedience, right? You notice that he didn't just say honor your parents, or that he didn't just say to obey your parents, but to honor them. And why would there be that distinction? Because... You can comply with your parents' wishes with a bad attitude. And that's not honoring your parents, is it? It's not going far enough. Now, obedience is a good thing. Even if you don't agree, you're grumped out about it. Yes, you should go ahead and obey. 
But God's going a little bit farther. The first commandment with promise is that you actually honor them in your spirit as well. External compliance as an eye service just because you're being seen for something is not truly honoring them in your spirit before God. And we know that God is looking on our heart, isn't he, to see what our spirit is. I would also say that honoring parents is holding them in such high regard that you adjust your attitude to respect their God-given position. That goes hand in hand with that. Even when you don't agree, and we could say, especially when you don't agree, couldn't we? So some of us might be in the position where we're not children now, but we're teaching our children, we're teaching others these definitions of what it truly means to honor your parents. I'd like to go a little bit farther as well here and point out that honoring parents is not merely something you do when you're young and in their household. And the Lord has brought that home to me and my wife at this particular stage uh, of our lives as the Lord brought to my mind the verses in Proverbs that say, do not despise your mother when she is old. And the Lord didn't bring those verses to my mind because I was despising my mom. He brought those to my mind to make me realize that honoring your parents at this stage of your life for me was going to mean moving to Arizona. <laughs> and everything that you can, uh, can think about the last time you moved, you remember, you know, on these lists of 10 most stressful things, moving is right up there. Um, and honoring your parents is, uh, is something that's worth going to all that trouble for. And so the Lord brings us to think about this at this stage of our lives, doesn't he? That honoring your parents is something ongoing. First Timothy chapter 5 as well mentions that honoring your parents may mean providing for them or caring for them in their old age. Very important passage. And then Christ himself emphasized this in the book of Mark in the Corban passage where he talks about the Pharisees who didn't want people to uh, spend money on their parents because, of course, they wanted the money to be put in the offering plate so they could control it. And he's saying, no, they should honor their parents. So honoring parents, of course, does continue at this stage of our adult lives. So that would be the number one guide to success. And I want to point out that this principle is also stated negatively. And to this point, some of us being parents were thinking, this is really good, you know, you want to harp on what the kids need to be doing. But there's actually a second point to be made here. Do you realize the very last thing that God said in the Old Testament at the end of the book of Malachi before the 400 years of silence was he closed out the Old Testament with a warning of a curse for children who do not honor their parents. Did you pick up on that when you read through Malachi the last time? And also for us as parents, God warns a curse for fathers whose heart is not toward their children. Dads, how are we doing? Could you say that your heart is toward your kids? You say, well, I'm providing for them. I'm not beating my kids. But is your heart toward your kids? And God says, we better do this lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 with me. God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now we know that eschatologically that's fulfilled in the book of Revelation, but also referred to John the Baptist in the time of Christ, 400 years after this prophecy. And so he was going to send Elijah the prophet or preacher to bring this about. He, through his preaching, 
will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Because sometimes, don't we as dads get frustrated with our kids? That's why Ephesians says the things that it does about nurturing them instead of getting frustrated and provoking them to anger. Sometimes we need a preacher to turn our hearts as fathers and and as mothers, I'm sure, as well to our kids, to truly love on our kids and to be patient with them, to be Christ-like with them. So this preaching is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest he comes and strikes the earth with a curse. Do you realize that God would curse the earth because of this problem? Do you see what I'm saying? The importance of parental relations. So that's the number one guide to success, that children would honor their parents and that fathers would have their hearts toward their kids. Let's talk about the second one. And this is the one I'd like to spend the most time on tonight, the one that has been the most life-changing to me. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 says that we are to meditate on God's Word day and night. Now again, this is not rocket science, but I just want you to think with me. I think most of us in this room tonight are mature Christians. We know a lot about the Bible. And we're favorably disposed toward the Bible. But do we actually meditate on God's Word day and night? Look at Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 with me with fresh eyes. This book of the law, God told Joshua, he's on the verge of the conquest of Canaan. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands. I'm not going to have you fill out a card or a survey tonight. But if I just said, how many times in the evening do you think you turn your heart to God's Word? What would it be? One? Five? (laughs) None? Could you say, could I say that I actually meditate on God's Word day and night? And this is the promise that we have. And you might be thinking, well, of course, Joshua, he had to do it because he was a great leader of God's people, right? And we're going to find out later on it's not only for people who are leading God's people. But this is the command and this is the promise. You want your way to be prosperous? You want to have good success? Are you frustrated that you feel like you're not successful in what you're trying to do for God? Did you actually follow his rule book? Are you actually meditating day and night? Now, I think we tend to stress over things day and night. We tend to fret and we worry. And if we're really spiritual, we probably pray. And we think, I need to ask the Lord for help. But do we actually then turn our hearts to God's word when we're worrying about the politicians and wars and rumors of wars and the finances do we actually go one step further and meditate on God's word what does God have to say about my finances about what's going on in the world about politicians about my marriage about my rearing of children about being successful in God's eyes in my ministry am I meditating on God's word day and night this has been the single most life-changing thing for me, not that I've mastered it, but as I have given myself to this, God has helped me immensely. Regardless of my vocation, now here's why I want to point this out. So you think about Joshua in his situations, like 
He's about to face the conquest of Canaan, right? He's leading a people who are not trained in military things. They don't have a lot of weapons because they've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Joshua's probably thinking, um, God, the stuff about meditation, what I really need <laughs> is military strategy. I need tactical savvy. Don't you understand? I'm not a preacher. I'm a military leader. And I've got to lead these people in conquest. And yet, obviously, God has it right when he says, Joshua, the main thing you need is to meditate on my word day and night so that you can obey. Not that studying military strategy would be wrong for him. I'm sure that that was a good thing for him. And so indirectly, as we give ourselves to try to be successful in what we feel God has called us to do, meditating on Scripture, even if our vocation is not to be a preacher, is the most important thing for success. And what about my temperament? So if I know how we think, some of us are thinking, well, I'm just not a meditation kind of guy. I'm, I'm just not a book person. I'm an action person. I love God. I want to serve God. But it's like, I've tried to memorize the Bible before. I've tried to meditate on it. It's just like, it doesn't stick. And so I want to love God, but like, that's just not going to work for me. Well, think about Joshua. I, I can just hear him. It's like, Lord, you know that in the book of Joshua, all these kids for centuries in Sunday school, like everybody wants to study Joshua because it's a book of action, right? I'm an action kind of guy. I'm not a preacher. Maybe my temperament is not to meditate on things, but God, even to a person like Joshua, is saying this is our great need and this is the great promise of God's success, to meditate on Scripture. Now, to emphasize the fact that this is for everybody, I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this would be, if you want to turn in your scriptures, this would be a really important passage tonight for us to camp on. I'm not starting in the beginning of the passage for a certain reason, but I want to point out that this is in the great Shema passage in the Old Testament. And this would have been one of the first things that a Hebrew child would have been taught uh, to memorize. For us, if you think of the Romans Road, one of the first things maybe that you teach your children, this is the passage they would have gone to in Hebrew education. And it says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now look at that phrase with me, the phrase, These words shall be in your heart. And what phrase have I used tonight? I've talked about meditating day and night, haven't I? This is where I'm getting this from. These words shall be in your heart. What does it mean to have God's word in your heart? It means that it's constantly in your mind, right? You're constantly thinking about it. Let's keep going here. These words, of course, is the words of the law, the book of the Old Testament in this case. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Moses speaking to the people on the plains of Moab before they enter the land. And you shall teach them what? The words that I just said should be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. What is he saying here? Just all the time that God's word would be on your lips. And that happens when God's word is in your mind, doesn't it? You have got to put God's word in your mind. We don't sit like bumps on a log and wait for God to strike us with all those verses being memorized in our head, right? We have to put those verses in our mind for this to work. 
and to diligently teach our children, to talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. And this is not to be robotic, right? God wants this to be the most natural thing that we just naturally talk about these things because they're in our hearts, right? We naturally talk about what we love, don't we? If your child said to you, Dad, I just love sports. It's like, I've never heard you talk about sports in all these years. What do you mean you love sports? If you don't talk about sports, I don't, I don't think you love sports. If we love God's Word, we're going to talk about His Word, and God wants that to be natural, right? Not, not to be forced, although at times there could be diligent and systematic instruction in something like family devotions. But when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, what's he saying here? He's painting a picture that just all the time God's word should be on our lips. Well, how does that happen? It happens when we meditate day and night and God teaches us things and we grow in a love for his word. And here's what else he says. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, do you think that what God really wants is that we have this little phylactery on our hand and on our forehead like the Pharisees did. And I don't, looking around tonight, I don't see anybody here tonight that has that. It's like, what are you, disobedient Christians? Nobody tonight is wearing a phylactery. What is the spirit of this? It's like God's word should be so emblazoned in our heart that it's like it was just printed on our forehead and on our hand. It was just always constantly before us, but it's not a ritualistic thing, is it? Do you really think that's what God wants? God wants it to be so naturally cherished in our hearts that it would be like that. He's trying to paint a picture, isn't he, of what that's all about. And he says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, you could do that without actually loving the word of God, couldn't you, if you just felt like it was slavish obedience. And yet, again, it's a picture that we so meditate, we so cherish the Word of God that we would want to put it on the walls of our house, perhaps on our front door. And so this is the picture that God is painting for us. And this is not just Joshua, is it? This is not just the leaders of God's people. This is all of us that God wants. And so I would say tonight that day and night meditation is an overlooked duty. And here's what I mean by that. It's not a matter of conscience with us as much as it should be. So I, I just, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I've been uh, in very good churches and hobnobbing with Christian young people uh, in Christian college settings. And I think I know how our consciences work. And basically, it's like this. If we're really trying to be good Christians, we get the fact that we should have our devotions in the morning. And that's a great thing, isn't it? And I think most of the good Christians that I know, they're trying to serve the Lord, trying to do right. It's like, if they don't have their devotions, their conscience bothers them. And that's a good thing. I'm not trying to minimize or deride that. But let me just ask you a question. Don't misunderstand me. But where did you ever see in the Bible that you should have your devotions? And I did a search in a number of translations in Bible works tonight. The only place I found the word devotions was in Acts when Paul was criticizing the pagan worshipers uh, for their devotions to false gods. 
And yet, over and over, God says in Scripture that we're to meditate day and night, and yet, I think many of us aren't doing that. It's not bothering our conscience. And so, I'm not saying we shouldn't have our devotions. I think that's a great start. And that helps us to meditate on God's Word day and night. But you see what I'm saying? Like, does it ever bother your conscience? When's the last time that you felt guilty because you weren't meditating day and night? And yet that actually, God says that over and over in Scripture. And so all I'm trying to get us to do is, I mean, really get into the Word and say, what does God actually say? So if I could put it to us like this, I think that having your devotions is like eating a good breakfast. You want to be healthy? Eat a good breakfast? Go for it. That's a great thing to do. But you see how that doesn't go far enough? Because how many times have you had your devotions in the morning and God fed you and you were thankful and you prayed and, and God used that in the morning and then you get in the evening and you're all out of sorts and you're stressing and you're in the flesh and it's just not working and you're being mean to your spouse and you see what I'm saying? It's like having your devotions is a good start, but it's not actually everything that God says. What God actually promises to bless is to meditate on his word day and night. I hope you see where I'm going with that. It's an overlooked duty, and we're not as conscientious about that as we should be. I think we think of meditating day and night as something that the super saints do. Now, I put that in quotes because actually there are no super saints, right? And if there was one here tonight, the most godly missionary that you know, and you told them you thought they were a super saint, they would be upset with you because they know they have feet of clay, right? It's like some, of, some people might look at you as a Christian Sunday school teacher and, and think that you're a super saint, and you're like, I know myself, I'm not a super saint. There are no super saints, but we tend to think of people in a separate category, don't we? The missionaries, they need to be meditating day and night, but like, that's just not me. Well, do you want to have God's promise for success? Do I want to have God's promise for success? This is actually what he promises to bless. So, I mean, are you willing to be made willing to do this? Um, maybe you've been a Christian like I have for decades and we need to break up some fallow ground and say, I'm willing to let God grow me in this area. To begin to meditate day and night. It's not just for the so-called super saints. An overlooked duty, but now let's get beyond the duty for a second. It's like, oh, Dr. Davis, you're laying this on my conscience. You're trying to make me feel guilty. It's like, I don't have time for one more duty, but actually, it's a delight when it's properly done. Psalm 1-2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, not just in the promises. We delight in the promises, don't we? God's going to be with us forever. I've graven you in the palms of my hands, those blessed promises. I put your sins as far away as the east is from the west. It's like, Wow, I delight in that, but do we actually delight in the law of God when God tells us how we're supposed to live? And the blessed man actually delights in the law of God. Now, here's the promise. Here's why I'm telling you. You want to know God's promise for success? Look at verse 3. He, who? 
The man who delights in the law of God, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in his season, whose leaf also will not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You see where I'm getting that? Do we want to prosper? Delight in the, God, in the law of God day and night and meditate day and night in God's word. Psalm 119 also brings this out in verse 97. The psalmist said, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Well, if we truly love it, we will meditate all the day. Is that my experience? And the psalmist in Psalm 63 also said, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the night watches. You ever wake up in the middle of the night and your mind starts to run to all these things that you're worried about and you're trying not to think about those things because you want to be able to go back to sleep? Do we ever turn our mind to the Word of God? That's what the psalmist is saying. I meditate in the night watches and I remember you on my bed. And then I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for just a moment. And I want to point out something that I didn't mention so much the first time. But in verse 6, when God says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Do you notice what that grew out of? I mentioned the great Shema passage, which is uh, the famous passage in Deuteronomy where it says, The Lord our God is one Lord, and you not have any other gods. And he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. We know that Christ picked up on that in the New Testament. And when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, he went back to the Shema, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is where we get these words that we're to meditate on the Scripture and to have it on our hearts. And so it's as if in verse 5 he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And so you say, okay, I'm willing to do that, but God, tell me, what does that look like? Because all that sounds internal. It's in my heart, it's in my soul, with all my strength. What does that look like? Well, he says, okay, these words then are going to be in your heart. You're going to speak of them when you walk by the way. And when you rise up in the morning, when you sit down at night, you're going to bind them as frontlets. You're going to write them on the doorposts of your house. So do you see that this meditation that I'm talking about, it grows out of loving God with all our heart. And so, let's say I'm in the military and uh, I'm a married guy. I'm on the other side of the world. I'm in uh, Asia somewhere and my wife's back home and I'm talking to my roommates. I'm talking about how I love my wife and I miss her. And there are these letters that come and I never read them. And I think when we think about a relationship with God, the only way that we know how to quantify our relationship with, with God is our relationship to his word because we can't see him. If we're in the first century and Christ is here and we're going out of our way to be with him and we're following him and we're doing what he says, then it's a little more tangible. But in this day and age, my relationship to my Bible basically is my relationship to God, isn't it? And you, you think about that. If, I, if I'm not drawn to my Bible, I'm not drawn to God. If I don't think about my Bible, I'm not thinking about God. 
And so if I'm saying that I love God, but I'm not reading his word, how does that really add up? So I'm telling my roommate I'm on the other side of the world. I can't talk to my wife because I took away my cell phone. The only way I can connect with her is these letters, and I don't read them, or I don't read all of them, or I don't think about them, or I don't cherish them, or I don't respond to what's in them. I'm not really exhibiting love for my wife, am I? And so all this that I'm saying about meditating day and night is to grow out of a deep love for God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. And so to meditate day and night is a way to love God with my mind, isn't it? I want to move on. In James chapter 1, we find that meditating day and night is a way to fully implant the word. Let me talk about what I mean by that. The King James phrase is to engraft the word. And if you graft with a tree or a bone graft, you're actually meshing fibers. And I think that's the idea here. So why does God say it this way that you have to meditate day and night? And I think that the reason that he puts it that way is that when I actually meditate day and night, God's word intersects with everything that I'm experiencing. And I want to share uh, a negative example on myself uh, when I was a new Christian, I went away to Bible college and I got this idea that you're supposed to memorize scripture. I was memorizing in the book of Ephesians this part about letting all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And I'm working on this verse and I'm a new Christian. I've got all these bad attitude habits uh, from high school and this guy walks into the room where I was and like, I don't like him. I don't like his hair. I don't like the way he talks. I don't like his personality. I'm like, this guy, he's, he's a chump. I don't even like him. <laughs> and this intersects with this verse that I'm meditating about, not having malice and evil speaking. It's like, God convicts me. I feel so terrible. And I didn't say anything to the guy, but these are my attitudes. I'm like, I'm still getting the old man out. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. <laughs> but like, what I'm saying is God was engrafting his word in me because I was meditating. It wasn't just that I had my devotions, but I'm walking around and I'm working on verses and I'm intersecting with people and I'm intersecting with issues and God is implanting, God is meshing the fibers of my life with his word. Do you see why he says it the way that he does, that it has to be that day and night, that constant meditation? Because that's the only way that this is really going to happen. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. He doesn't just tell Joshua to obey it. If you really want this to work, it's got to be that day and night meditation. But it's, let me go back. It's so that you may observe to do. This is not just intellectual improvement, right? This is just not memorizing for the sake of being able to memorize things and to be able to quote them. It's for the purpose of making application that's so important, but until you intersect that with all your life, the proper applications are not all going to be made. I want you to think for a moment about King David's failure. Now, maybe you feel like you're a mature Christian, you're doing pretty well on this stuff. Think about David when he was trying to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He's at his prime, and he's so excited because the ark was the symbol of the gospel. He wouldn't have known that term for it. But the picture of the blood-bought approach to God and the picture of the presence of God. And he's so thankful that uh, the ark is coming to Jerusalem. He's the king. He's, he's pumped up about this. And the oxen cause the ark to stumble. And Uzzah puts out his hand to steady it. And God kills him. 
And David is upset with God. He's like, God is ruining his great moment. This is how David feels about it. Like, why did God have to do that to us? He was trying to help, right? Well, there's a reason that that happened. If you read in Chronicles, a little bit later, David says, now I get it. We weren't doing it the right way because God said that only the Levites were to carry it. You weren't supposed to use these brute beasts, these animals, because the ark was so holy. It could only be carried by Levites who were um, uh, commissioned and anointed by God. They were special people in that sense. And so David got it, but why did he get it? Because he went back to the scripture and God taught him, but he was already a mature believer at that time. He was the king. He had already written scripture. And yet he missed something in the Old Testament. And it cost him. It cost us a. So what I'm saying is, even at this stage of our lives, we need to be getting into the Old Testament and reading Leviticus and reading Ezekiel and reading Malachi and keeping all of God's word in our minds. Finally, meditating day and night is a way to deliver my soul, first of all, in spiritual warfare. Have you noticed that we're in spiritual warfare? <laughs> there are enemies in the spiritual realm that are out to get us. Satan himself, like a roaring, roaring lion, is seeking to devour us. And so Ephesians 6, 17, our only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit. This is the term for the little dagger. This is not the big broad sword that you swing. It's a little dagger. It's a little verse that you use to fight off the devil and have spiritual victory and to fight away those fiery darts of doubt. The little verses that you put in your mind, if you don't put those in your mind, they're not going to come out at the right time. So in spiritual warfare, meditation delivers my soul. Meditation delivers me from the pull of the flesh. Have you noticed that when you got saved, your flesh didn't get saved? Anybody else besides me notice that? Now, what's all that about the flesh being crucified? Well, the power of the flesh indeed is broken. Like, before I was saved, I was not able to resist the flesh because all I was was flesh. There wasn't God's Spirit living inside me. And now God has broken the chains of sin, and I'm able, when I respond to the Spirit, to have victory over the flesh. But I still have the flesh. Have you noticed that? And so the Bible says that the flesh is pulling one way and the Holy Spirit's pulling the other way. We have got to sow to the Spirit and that happens when I day and night meditate. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. That means the flesh is pulling this way and the Spirit's pulling the other way. We've got to feed the Spirit. What does that mean? We sow to the Spirit. We give those verses to our mind that are the words of the Spirit that minister to our soul and give us victory. And finally delivers my soul from the deceptive temptations of Satan. I want, you, want us to think at this point about the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. If even Christ himself had to answer with Scripture, how much more do we need to take the Scripture? When Satan came to him with temptations, he didn't just say no. He answered with the Word of God. And here's something to think about. The devil comes to him, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple... And he says, all right, if you're the son of God, this is the second temptation. Christ has already rebuffed him on the first temptation with the word of God. So the second time Satan is bringing the word of God to him, says, okay, if you're the son of God, 
throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple because it's written, now the devil's using the scripture, he will give his angels charge over you and, he quotes another scripture, in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. And so in our humanness, we could reason, well, if he throws himself off the pinnacle, then people will see that the angels pick him up and so people will believe in him. And so you see how you could rationalize at certain times and give yourself to temptation. Satan could deceive you even with the word of God. And yet, if we meditate on Scripture, as Christ did, he realized that would be tempting the Lord God, like doing something rash just to see what God will do. Will he deliver me? Do you see what I'm saying? That because our Lord, of course, he it was a unique situation because the Son of God, but he had to put all those Scriptures in, in his mind. That's what was going on when he was 12 years old at the temple, wasn't it? He had to ask questions. Do you realize that he himself had to put the scripture in his mind? That was not a phony. He wasn't asking questions as a phony. Like he knew all this, but he's asking questions. As a 12-year-old boy, as a son of man, as a real man, he had to learn those things. We don't understand how all that works. But if we want to be like Christ, we need to be like he was at constantly wanting to learn about the scripture so that he could see through the deceptions of the devil and that God would deliver him. So if your heart is willing to do this and your heart is drawn out to this, maybe you're saying, okay, Dr. Davis, how do I start with this? Like, are you asking me to get involved in some program? Well, there actually is a really good app called the Bible Memory app. I'm not paid to make this advertisement, but it's a wonderful tool if you want it. I'm sure you can Google it. You can get the free version. My wife and I bought the $10 version. It's a great thing to have. It will help you and encourage you. But here's something that also works. I don't know if you remember these. This is high tech, but this is called the 3x5 card. And I literally got through college on 3x5 cards. And they still work, actually. Um, and you take one of these things and you find a verse and you ask God to show you a verse and you grab a pencil and you write it down and you pop it in your pocket or if you're a lady, you put it in your purse and you carry it with you and when you've got those moments, you turn your mind to that and you think about it and then God intersects that in the fi uh, fiber of your life and God gives you victory. That is a wonderful place to start. And then we've got these things called cell phones and did you know that if you're... Uh, savvy enough with technology you can actually figure out how to put a Bible verse on the front of your phone it's like how many times a day do you go to your Bible verse to go to your cell phone and and that's what you're looking at and sometimes I've had pictures of my family on there sometimes I've had Bible verses and God can use that to meditate day and night on his word but the key is to make it your delight isn't it that's what God really wants is that we would love him in that way well, I've gone over time a little bit tonight, but I hope that this will be an encouragement. Don't get discouraged with this. Don't feel overwhelmed. I mean, just start where you are and ask God to help you to delight in his word day and night. And if you get discouraged, it didn't happen yesterday, pick right back up the next day. And let's all seek together to love the Lord in this way.